0: and welcome to the Hardcore Podcast. I'm your host Romy Adair and in this podcast we get into the nitty-gritty parts and experiences that are often had during the journey to become a professional dancer. Chatting to dancers in training and professional from all around the world creating one safe space that can be shared by many. Without further ado let's get into the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined with Carmen Callahan. Hi, Carmen. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No worries at all. Let's get straight on into the quick fire round to start off today's episode. So, first question is How old are you? I'm 24 years old. 24. And what is like, what was your training, and where are you currently dancing?
1: Yeah, I grew up um, when I was studying in school. I went to Pacific Northwest Ballet School Mm -hmm. in Seattle and I did all of my intermediate and advanced ballet training Mm -hmm. there. That's where I got really serious about ballet. And then when I graduated high school, I went to um, Pittsburgh Ballet Theater Mm -hmm. and I was in the graduate program there for like 2.9 almost three years Mm -hmm. and then I joined American Contemporary Ballet where I am now in the summer of 2018 and I've been there ever since.
0: Mm -hmm. Nice we'll get into your whole journey um, in a bit as well (laughs) Um, and what point shoes do you wear and has that kind of been a journey for you? It's it's been a full journey. I
1: wear um, a custom free to order my maker's butterfly. I've been with the butterfly maker for got 7 years i think mm-hmm. a very long time um i have so much trouble with shoes cuz the way my feet are shaped so mm-hmm. i like got into getting a custom order like well before I was a professional dancer, like even as a student, I had to be like special ordering my shoes. <laughs> so it's been like so many years of like different trials, and, like changing little things. But mm-hmm. now I've been, I've been on these shoes for a while and I really love them.
0: Nice. Um, I was talking to someone else recently, actually the other day, who was wearing, who mentioned Butterfly Maker. And then oh, someone else. <laughs> I love yeah. how there's yeah. just like all these different people are just wearing like the same maker shoes obviously different styles but yeah I love it um and what is your favorite leotard Ooh, um I don't have like a favorite specific leotard but I love the
1: color green I'll always wear okay, the color no
0: yeah I love a good yeah I love a green leotard as well <laughs> um and what is your favorite piece of choreography you've either learned like you've learned and it can be performed or like not performed whatever
1: Serenade by George Balanchine. I performed it as the core um, my first year in the Pittsburgh Ballet Theatre graduate program. Mm-hmm. So that was really special. But I mean, I love all of Mr. B's works, but mm-hmm. I think Serenade, especially as the core, actually, like everyone mm-hmm. wants to be a principal, but the core is like the lifeblood of that ballet. So yeah. it, was
0: really,
1: it was really awesome.
0: Mm. No, that sounds, I'd love, yeah, is a beautiful piece. um and I just, I've started recently getting really into Balanchine's work just because I'm not super familiar with it because it just hasn't ever been part of my training. So mm-hmm. it's interesting, kind of, I guess, like learning that now. Um, and what is your favorite food?
1: Ooh, that's such a good question. <sighs> I love like a good green juice. Like I'm really a sucker for. Like <laughs> drinking my food apparently a little bit. <laughs> like, love to drink my it's fast. Here's my theory. It's really fast. Like if you're between rehearsals and mm-hmm. you'll have like a heavy day, you just drink your nutrients real quick. Mm-hmm. Have a good like green green smoothie, you're good to go.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I mean definitely. Um yeah, those busy days, <laughs> like how do you fit it in? It's yeah, definitely. Um, and let's go into more about like you and your dance experience growing up so you know how old were you when you started um and then at what point did you decide you kind of wanted to pursue it professionally um yeah yeah so
1: I um started dancing at like four or five Mm -hmm. and um danced and did like all the different styles of dance for like a while and then When I was 12, like my family lived in Seattle where PNB is, so close enough. Um, When I was 12, which actually is like kind of on the older side, I, one of my friends was going to the audition for PNB and you even, you have to audition even at that age Mm. for the school there. And so I was like, oh, I'm just going to go, you know, I was like, oh, it's no big deal. Like, I'm not going to get in. I'm just going to go for the experience and I literally only went to the audition because like my friend was going Mm. that's fully it I was like I'm just gonna go support my friend (laughs) go to this audition and so my mom took me to the audition and I got into the school and um, then I was like well I have to go obviously yeah (laughs) that was kind of the turning point of the transition of like to just doing classical ballet um, or just like being on more of a ballet track. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it almost kind of just got handed to me. Like, I just was like, well, I have this opportunity to have like this incredible faculty to have this really rigorous program where they have such a set syllabus and like the track was kind of already laid out for me Mm -hmm. there with PNB, but I was definitely one of the like, Older kids to like okay. join the school. Like when I came into the school, I was 12. And you know, the other students had been there since level one. Like when since they're like, I think they're like eight in level okay. one. Mm-hmm. That's when they start the uh the student division at PMB yep. schools there's, there's eight levels. And you know, ideally they've bred these dancers from level one through eight. So when I mm. came in, I was in level four. And there was a little bit of, like, a lot of catching up to do a little bit, like, mm-hmm. just to understand, like, like with any school, like, how teachers want things. And I was also, like, being introduced to the Balanchine technique for the first time. So, like, and now I'm, like, people would laugh. Everyone's, like, oh, Carmen, she's, like, a Balanchine baby. Like, <laughs> now I'm, like, oh, I've got it down. But at the time, like, there there is, like, it's so interesting how with styles of ballet, like, it really the style that you're in will really um, just indicate what's going on a lot of the time. And like, it can be like really culture shock, even to just, and it's like crazy because, you know, we're doing the same things, but like certain things will just be so different.
0: Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I I had my first taste of, I guess, kind of um, Balanchine-esque when I was like working with like a director over Christmas and stuff. And that was my first, yeah experience of kind of more balancing stars and stuff like pirouettes with a straight back leg I was like whoa hold on hold on <laughs> I was Ooh. like I'm not used to this like what are you what is going on here um so yeah that was funny um what were the I guess like touching more on the challenges of that transition because I you know imagine it must have been difficult for you kind of going from like not I guess like not, not balancing style but also you weren't in the same environment to then going into a really serious and rigorous program um how did you feel and then the whole feeling of catching up how did you like deal with that
1: yeah I think it really changed I mean obviously it's it's opened up like so many mm-hmm. doors for mm-hmm. me having mm-hmm. had that been so fortunate to have that great training but yeah. I think like it, it definitely made me, that was definitely the switch of when I was like, okay, I want to do this professionally someday. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was so young, I was 12, but I was already ready. I was like, I want to do it yeah. professionally. Um, because when I went to PNB, I could like, you know, clearly see very quickly, like this is a very professional school. The teachers expected you to come in, to give it your all, to like be someone who was thinking about Having a professional career, Mm -hmm. and so it was very much more serious than anything I'd ever been. So I knew that I needed to rise up to that level. Like you Mm -hmm. know, if that if I wanted to be here and study here, then Mm -hmm. I needed to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how that switched over for me to
0: like
1: taking everything a lot more seriously.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds great. so you were there up until the last level if i'm correct before you went to pittsburgh um what was it like kind of going through the older like you know through the high levels and as you started growing and things started to get more serious just because you know you're obviously reaching that age where it's like okay i've got to go out and find work um did you find that the training well obviously, it kind of would have got more challenging as it went on. um. But how did you, yeah, did any kind of challenges come up through those later years that Definitely. were like difficult? So, and how did you kind of get through them, I guess?
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, once you got to to level eight, mm-hmm. um, which is the final level, you're kind of expected to like go and, you know, find figure out what it is you want to do, figure yeah. out, make some opportunities happen. Mm-hmm. So I, we were all, all the girls, you know, are looking for like a trainee program or some sort of program that they, mm-hmm. with a company that they ideally want to dance for. Mm-hmm. And I think I definitely went through, I, a little after I left PB, but like um, when I was in Pittsburgh Ballet Theater and stuff, I was like really actually struggling a lot with like what um, kind of dancer I wanted to be. Like I knew I wanted to be in ballet, Um, But I was having this real disconnect with seeing that uh, I think a lot of ballet and a lot of ballet companies, this is not, this might be controversial on this podcast, (laughs) but But a lot of like dancers and companies even are Mm. just boring. Mm -hmm. Like they're doing kind of a standard repertory. They're bringing out Swan Lake just for Swan Lake's sake Mm. and the dancers, even though they're very good. They're very technically proficient. You know, a lot of dancers I see out in the professional world are the kind of dancers that just, they do Swan Lake and they're technically so proficient, but that's it. Mm. Like there's no deeper level. There's like no artistry and they can't do even a lot of like mixed repertory or stuff that is really cool and like Mm -hmm. would be really artistically fulfilling. Mm. So I definitely agree. I knew at some point like what kind of dancer I didn't want to be like I was like I don't want to do that like I don't want to be a technique robot Mm -hmm. you know where you just like and I see them all the time where it's just like wow it's impressive because they can pound out like literally anything from the classical repertory but you're also like there's nothing there Mm. artistically and so I knew that you know, I couldn't do that to myself, but I didn't really have a set idea of like how I could do the other thing, which is, you know, (laughs) be an interesting dancer and to be someone that just like your eye gravitates towards them. Like that's the kind of dancer you ultimately like want to be. You want people to be just like captivated by you and not necessarily because you can do like 12 pirouettes. Who cares? Mm -hmm. It's much more about creating something truly interesting and bringing life into choreography and having that choreography then be choreography that you're really interested in. You know, it's going to be really hard to bring life to something where that you don't like Mm -hmm. or that, you know, again, like it's the class, the standard repertory. If you're on your 17th Cinderella, it's going to be really hard. (laughs) So... (laughs) There was definitely like a disconnect for me of like what I was seeing be presented in a lot of companies and in the world Mm -hmm. and what I really like felt like art was and like Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately, I think that for me, that got resolved when I joined American Contemporary Ballet Mm Um, because it, it does, we have a very mixed repertory and it is the kind of place where I'm really supported to like explore that kind of side of like the interesting dancer side of myself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very lucky because I think a lot of places are not, are not that. Mm -hmm. And like, honestly, that's probably what is contributing a lot to like young audiences not being invested in ballet. and this whole kind of you know why should someone my age be interested in Swan Lake they're not going to be even with the most beautiful dancer dancing it because it just falls flat a lot of the time
0: yeah I definitely agree with that and it's interesting because this conversation like vaguely came up in another episode that I recorded yesterday kind of talking about like the difference between what the audience wants to see and what the dancer wants to do or whether that be the same. But like essentially the audiences won't keep coming to ballet unless like kind of things change because a lot of the standard rep, unless it gets mixed up, unless the people dancing it are not only technically proficient, but they are artistically able to tell a story. Like there's just so many things around like the very classical rep that's been around for years and years and years. And if that's all the company is doing, and they're the same every year or every two years, and nothing changes, then it's like, well, once someone's seen Swan Lake, it's unlikely they're going to want to see it again, because it no matter doesn't matter what company does it. To an untrained eye, they won't see the difference, and the majority of the audience is unt- like they're not trained dancers. Um, so yeah, it's 100%. interesting how you know how can the how can the industry change that um there are companies making changes and there are companies you know really switching up um different I don't know like recently I went and saw the Raymonda by um Tamara Rojo and that was a really great thing to see because I don't think it. she'd fully had re-choreographed it from the original I say the original in quotation marks but like whatever um you know the one that was choreographed like a hundred years ago. So it was it was refreshing, like it was exciting. There was things that hadn't been done before. There was a, di- you know, different scenery. Like there's so many things, and we need to see that more. Like the ballets need to be evolving with the times. And I think I don't know. Again, it's controversial. <laughs> I feel like I don't have that much of an opinion to speak about it. I'm literally like, ah. <laughs> yeah
1: I mean and dancers have changed like the
0: exactly the,
1: the whole virtuosity of it is almost kind of what I think is killing ballet right now of like our dancers in today in 2022 were capable of so much more mm. like no one would argue there are so many professional dancers who are capable of just all the tricks like can mm. do everything but we're so got so interested in that especially like in the last 20 years I think maybe Mm -hmm. longer but like now people are so interested in that like oh how high her leg is how much she can turn all this Mm -hmm. like kind of tricky stuff stuff, yeah right that it's it's not artistic what actually would bring in like you're saying the untrained eye like they don't know how difficult it is to do a million pirouettes, but there are things that will resonate with them, you know, which is like an artist really like living on stage. It's your April Ma. It's like things that are really going to get that audience to fall in love with you. Mm. Don't tend to be the same things that dancers are over here in the studio, like, you know, killing themselves to achieve. So there's a big disconnect between like what we're training into our dancers that, that that's important and like what actually really resonates with people who sit in the audience.
0: Mm, definitely, and I think that's where um, the people in artistic power need to sit and have a think to themselves. They need to sit down and make a decision, like make decisions, because yeah, that's the in between, I guess, between the dancers in training and then the audience other people in power who are making these decisions some are good some aren't so great but you know well I guess we'll see but definitely agree with you on that um yeah okay just trying to <laughs> went on a little um we went on a little um, tangent, tangent. We'll I love it, it though um oh okay I guess so so during your transition to you know being a professional from school what was that experience like because you were still in the same state because if I'm correct yeah Uh, both in Pennsylvania no no no, different state oh now you're in LA but when you yeah yeah. oh okay we'll talk about that transition yeah from moving from Pennsylvania to LA what was that like um Uh, yeah, that was such uh such a fun time
1: in my life, but uh, <laughs> it actually happened very unexpectedly. Um, I only came to ACB originally as a supplemental for okay. one for one show. Yeah, four years later, <laughs> four years later, I right. tell the story <laughs> for one show as a supplemental apprentice, and I just was supposed to like you know come in learn. Obviously, it's never guaranteed that you'll perform. I just understudied a bunch of stuff. I actually mm-hmm. ended up. I did perform in that ballet, mm-hmm. um, but I just came. I thought it was going to be in LA for six weeks. That's it. And then I was like, "We're going to leave now." And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, at the end of it, a couple things happened. Like, I had another contract lined up that fell through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just end up thinking I'm so lucky that that happened because I loved ACB so much in the mm-hmm. environment, and we do things a little differently. And so I just like. Loved it, and I got there and I got here. And I was like, Oh, this is a place where I can like grow so much. Like I mm. knew if I stayed, I would really become like not only the kind of dancer I wanted to become, but I would really become like the best dancer I had the capacity to be, mm-hmm. which of course, is a never-ending journey. but yeah well, <laughs> so I actually propositioned Lincoln Jones, our director. Like I actually called a meeting at the end of my time at ACB. Suit I suites, was like, yeah just I just went into the meeting and I put yourself out there please let me stay please let me stay and I think my proposition to him was was uh that I would learn everything I was like I'll just understudy everything I don't even care if I perform like I just want to like learn everything I promise you I'll be the best understudy ever like I'll learn everything and then he said yes so (laughs) that did you learn everything I did. I did. Okay. I truly did. I think that's secretly like my super, that's my ballet superpower. It's okay. not a glamorous one, but mm, handy. <laughs> But I'm pretty good at learning all the choreography and like being kind of like a swing. My first few years here, like in our Nutcracker, my second year, I think I had like four snow spots, three flower spots. Like I was just the person who could like jump in and out and like keep the different choreographies straight. Um, it's not really a glamorous superpower, but it's something I came across in my career where I was like, well, you know, I don't have the highest extension. I don't have the best feet. Like, I felt like I was like mediocre at everything. I was like, I turn. Okay. I jump. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, my adagio, "Mm, it's not great, but (laughs) I feel that there was this one thing that I could be good at, like that I could be smart, you know, I could be the smartest dancer in the room. I Mm -hmm. could go in and get the details and like Mm -hmm. learn the choreography. And that that was something that I didn't have to like be born with more rotation in my hips, right? Like I didn't have Mm -hmm. to go back and like be reborn to be really great at that. I just had to pay attention and really just be smart about it and work on my own outside of the studio and make sure I came in prepared Mm. so that started being like something that I realized I could kind of take and run with and it's it's opened up a lot of doors for me in my career of like times I've gotten I've got to perform you know just Mm -hmm. because I was like standing there and I was like I know it I can go in Mm -hmm. I can do it you know
0: that's such an important skill though like 100% like I think that's a really good ballet superpower to have um (laughs) because even though like you said maybe it's not the most glamorous one but directors choreographers people in the room really appreciate that and there's always someone who's injured there's always someone who's sick especially with COVID like my god like there's so many there's so many times where it could be just knowing something knowing that place knowing the counts knowing the details and being able to go in straight away can be the thing that gives you you know gets you from apprentice to core or even you know that's how so many people break through in their career is you know being a good understudy knowing what they're doing and then going on and making it happen um and I think it's kind of like an undervalued I guess I don't know what you'd call it like superpower I guess we're calling it um but, like you don't really hear many people talking about like how important it is to like make sure like you if you're an understudy that you don't just know your spot that you know everyone else's because you do not know what's going to happen and that could be the thing that you know pushes you forward um but was it like I guess you said that you I guess were prepared to like you know, learn everyone's thing and that's what you were going to do but did you like ever find it difficult not performing or kind of thinking oh am I going to get my chance where I'm not just a swing that I am actually getting a set part um, or like I don't know how that was for you but I don't know did you ever struggle with that? Yeah a little bit I mean I
1: think I got lucky because like really in a, nearly every show we did, mm-hmm. I did perform. Uh-huh. So I was just the, the one on the side. Like it always happened at the last minute, especially mm-hmm. like my first, my first year in the company, you know, my apprentice here, like yeah. it always seemed to happen and that I would get an opportunity after that. And, you know, small company too, like there's a lot more opportunities to just jump in and mm-hmm. get on stage, but definitely like even after we came back from COVID like my last this last past season which is now my fourth season Mm -hmm. but we have to prorate for COVID so really three (laughs) because you know the U.S. was so shut down for so long so we really three season but where I definitely like like this past Nutcracker definitely like got a little bit frustrated where I was like you know like this is kind of my thing that I know all the choreography but you know that is kind of getting me stuck in the core Mm. because my great thing is that like I can do all the snow spots no problem Mm. but when am I going to stop having to do all the snow snow yeah you know like and then I'm thinking to myself like you know well I'm I'm making a lot of progress like I would really like to see a little bit of an upgrade Mm -hmm. and so it's definitely hard to navigate like when you feel like you're ready for something and how to how to get yourself there. Like you have to push yourself kind of over Mm -hmm. the finish line of being able to, to do something. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely scary. I definitely am so comfortable in the chord ballet setting now that, that like doing lead roles actually is like way more. I mean, of course it's, it's always like more pressure to be like in a soloist role, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, doing, so. I did one of my first lead roles, this nutcracker. And I was like, so nervous, and like literally, I've done the demi part, which is like the same exact choreography a million times. <laughs> but I was like panicking, right? Because that's kind of I do a lot of lot of core work. And mm. so you just get really comfortable with that, with like, okay, I know where my spot is, mm-hmm. I know what the arm is, I know what the head is. And it's very different when you realize that you're you're the yeah. leading person here. Like mm-hmm. I remember this one part. You have there's a finale section and people started clapping. And I like finally realized like I was like, they must be clapping for me because I'm the only person on stage right now. So like (laughs) no way that they're clapping for anyone else. So you like assume that they're clapping for someone else. Like, especially what I've done the core like for so long, so many years Mm -hmm. in my career. Like I was like, yeah, no, they're definitely clapping for someone else. And then I finally exited and I was like, there's literally no way because it's all you you right now. Like,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I can imagine that must that's like such a weird transition. And kind of it's something I definitely want to ask people more when I, you know, have them on the podcast is because that's a it's a big transition going from core to then having, you know, whether it be demi solos or solos or even doing principal roles, you the not that the mindsets any different but it is a different feeling because it goes from you're being with everyone you've got that communal thing on stage you i don't know i think people might feel more comfortable in the core like obviously everyone's different to them being like okay this is like me like everyone's looking at me i'm the only one on stage or i'm at the front center front like got yeah. like there's just so much added pressure maybe i guess everyone's different um no it's definitely interesting because you kind of hit this realization especially
1: like your first like Mm. the first time you're doing something bigger that's a little Mm. bit of an upgrade over what you've been doing you're like Mm. oh shoot like you know i really need to carry it right now you realize like you know you're kind of like the people are there for you for however long your piece is like Mm -hmm. even if it's like just 30 seconds you're like oh well (laughs) you better be special for the next (laughs) because all eyes are on you
0: right now you know definitely um I guess something more interesting like because you did mention that like it's a little bit of a smaller company um American Contemporary Ballet am I correct correct yeah um I was like oh go (laughs) away ACB okay perfect how like and because the US was shut down for a large chunk of, you know, the last two years due to COVID, how did you, you know, were you quite supported by your company as a smaller company um, or was that difficult? I guess, were you staying in LA during those times? Did you still like have classes? Like, how were you, I guess, like I say, looked after in a smaller company? Um, yeah, hundred percent,
1: yeah it was difficult and there were definitely many different phases. Okay. And I can't speak to like how it was in other countries and even mm. in other parts of the U S like, mm. you know, I had it's friends different. in different parts of the U S that had different restrictions than we mm. had. Um, but we were really shut. Like the first couple months, I remember like dancing in my house, mm. it was great. Like just, you know, everyone was doing it, but it was I hated it. I will never dance in my house ever again. I know some people, some dancers were like, oh, I love this. I can oh practice." No, I it. it. <laughs> yes, I'm with you. I hated it. Cause you know what? I have a good theory as to why I hated it. It took, it takes away all the good parts. Oh, exactly. The good parts 100%. of dancing. Like mm-hmm. you can't really dance in your house. Nice. You can do tondus, but that's like not really dancing. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, ballet is just a really good like technique and vocabulary mm-hmm. for dancing for what it actually ultimately is, which mm-hmm. is dancing. You're yeah. supposed to dance and like to move music. your body. Yeah. And, yeah. Like you have mu like, and I'm also spoiled because I've always <laughs> had live music. <laughs> I've honestly like always, always had class mm-hmm. with live music pretty much my whole career. So mm-hmm. like then I was in my house and I was like, where's the, where's the pianist? Where's like, the
0: <laughs> pianist? I was, <laughs> I
1: was literally standing there like, I can't, I can't do today. So, <laughs> not, not today. Like, <laughs> not today. And then like, oh, you know, my favorite part of class is jumps. Can't mm, do that at home. No. So, I mean, I, to anyone who loves adagio, more power to you. They were having a grand old time in their mm. house. But that's my least favorite part of Same. the class. So Same. I was not having it. <laughs> no. But to answer your question, you know, as things started to progress with mm. the, with coronavirus and mm. COVID and everything, we, we did come back to company class and start mm. having, you know, it was, it was slow, the, mm. the lead up, we would have class, you know, once a week. And then for okay. a while, there was another shutdown. We had to have a zoom class okay. as a whole company and uh, this and that. So it was definitely like when we finally got back in the studio altogether, so great and wonderful and we're really lucky too because our director lincoln usually teaches the class himself Mm -hmm. so we're getting that one-on-one time Mm -hmm. with our director which is so special Mm -hmm. but um yeah i mean to not to go from zero to once a week to back to zoom to Mm -hmm. once a week then all of a sudden we're back in the studio Mm -hmm. like five days a week rehearsing performing everything it was it was crazy it was a
0: wild yeah. wild ride yeah no I think and I think a lot of dancers who are kind of yeah who have been like I guess working or like being able to work um during COVID I think every company's like I guess handled it differently and the restrictions are put so much like people be going doing from like full shows full classes full days to all being shut down nothing to then like so it's crazy this whole zero to a hundred and back and forth and I can imagine like that must have been difficult as well just you know because you're everything that you love has been taken away and obviously obviously everyone's had to go through that Um, oh yeah
1: yeah for the brain and the body I mean Mm. and also like not performing is Mm kind of like At the end of the day, that's why we dance. Like, even if you're going through like a training, like when I was at Pittsburgh Ballet Theater, I I never performed Mm. with the company there. They really like, we were not well suited to each other. They did not enjoy me as a dancer. So,
0: Mm.
1: you know, I did not perform a lot, but I was in the studio working hard and like training so that like, I knew that eventually I would find a place like someday I would Mm. perform now mm. i perform so much with acb but you know to have that be taken away by like an external force mm. you know, by, by something you can't control, control. Yeah. and hard. it's like i couldn't just like go into the studio and work and get you know work on my mm. technique myself better mm-hmm. or even if you have like an injury or something like you know you kind of throw yourself into healing and like mm. how can i support myself through this how can i get myself back on stage mm-hmm with the pandemic it's like you're just sitting there like well there's nothing there's nothing I can do because mm. it's so outside of your control yeah. that that mm. aspect I think was so hard for so many dancers mm.
0: definitely I mean I definitely struggle with that um at times I found it a bit peaceful in the sense that I was like okay I feel like the pressure had like been taken off me for a bit because I was like oh I actually can't control this I can only do what I can do like I can't control the outside situation so if no one's hiring then it's not my <laughs> no one can not, blame my me. Fault. <laughs> not my phone um but other than that no it's kind of it sucked um so I guess like going back how did you like get through the whole fact of not giving much stage time at Pittsburgh um because that must have been difficult to kind of you feel like you're yeah. constantly working and you feel like you're You know, really trying, you know, you're trying your best. You're doing everything, you know, you're being told to do. And I guess guess. knowing that you're not suited for what they want is really like, that's a really difficult thing to kind of, I guess, accept. Yeah, it was really hard. I, that
1: was really, yeah, it was really difficult because. Mm. I knew pretty quick like we did not suit each other it was not ever gonna work like I did
0: not, oh no I did
1: not ever have delusions that like I was gonna be in the company there like it was very clear very quickly okay. they did not like me <laughs> they did not like like it was and it was a big program too so like oh okay I was the last cast for okay. everything. Like I'm open about it now because mm-hmm. it's honestly kind of funny now. Because, yeah, you like, can now, laugh at it now. Yeah. Now I've really found a place where I just fit, and mm-hmm. that's all. That's all professional dancing really is mm-hmm. about. Honestly, is like finding the place where you fit, and it's you have to suit each other mutually. The company that you're in and you as a dancer. I think so many dancers were are trying to fit themselves into this idea of, I wanna dance in this company, so I have to look like this type of a dancer. Mm -hmm. When in reality, like the type of dancer that they are naturally, is like that they're a beautiful dancer they're just not suited to the company that they have on this pedestal that is their ideal company and like so many dancers honestly probably like lose a lot of their artistry I shoot I know I did like I was Mm -hmm. I wanted to have been in PBT I wish (laughs) but like I knew very quickly it wasn't going to happen for me Mm -hmm. but you know you try and fit yourself square peg round hole Mm -hmm. and that's not the way to do it I don't think but Mm -hmm. it's not ever really talked about you know like it it's something that we sort of force upon people of like, oh, if your technique is good, oh well, if you work hard, you'll get jobs, you'll get company contracts. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of true, but at the end of the day, it's a lot about your movement style. And like that's something that gets talked about in contemporary all the time. But with mm-hmm. ballet, it's still true. Like you mm-hmm. still have a natural movement quality. Yes. You still have a natural movement style and what's gonna fit you the best is always if you're at a place like where that's naturally appreciated. And then you build on that Mm. with technique and like with you your work ethic of you always wanting Mm. to be a better dancer. Mm. But so many people I think are trying to like fundamentally change who they are as a dancer because they're like, well, I want to be in the Dutch national or whatever. And Mm. they have this idea of that if you want to be a dancer
0: in that company, you must look like this and you must Mm. do this and that. And it's just not really true. Mm. No, definitely. And I think a lot of people will relate to that in terms of, yeah, feeling they have to change the way they move, the way they express things um, in movement to fit a company's mold or to fit a, a choreographer's mold. Um, I think that's a really common feeling because, yeah, there's just so, there's just not that much, there's more dancers than there is work. And I think there's this whole like, "Oh my God, I feel like I have to change this because I'm not you know, and then there's a the whole feeling of not feeling good enough, and so many things that come along with that um, going on, I know you mentioned your experiences with inequality and racism during your journey and I guess your career. what if you're happy talking about that what yeah, yeah what are some of those? What was that like and kind of how did you, are they more recent? Are they when you were younger Um, and how did you like go get through that? Yeah,
1: I think as a Latina dancer, you're aware a lot of the time that you are potentially the only person in the room, Mm -hmm. right? You're the only, and I I think a lot of, I can't speak for a lot Mm. of dancers of color, but it's it's quite obvious most of the time like oh okay I'm the only person here that's yeah Yeah." and even as a white presenting person like white people tend Mm -hmm. to tend to be comfortable with what they're comfortable with so yeah and especially Mm -hmm. like we're, we're in an industry where appearance is part of it and it's it's something that matters but we've blurred the lines I think a lot between like What's a what's a person's appearance and what is their dancing? Like, mm-hmm. there's a there's a big line because, and I think a lot of it is born out of this idea of wanting to have like a uniformity in the core, mm-hmm. and that all the dancers would theoretically look alike. And it's just born out of like old history and and racial bias. Honestly, at the at yeah. the end of the day, oh, yeah. there'd be no reason why mm-hmm. a dancer of color couldn't, couldn't be just as, but, you know, it's born out of this idea that, they, that they, the swans must all be uniform, right? Mm-hmm. They must all look the same, they must blend into the background. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, you know, you end up in rooms where every dancer sort of looks the same. and mm-hmm. And I've had experiences too, where I know I look like all the other dancers in the room, you know, like mm-hmm. short torso, long legs, lean body type. Mm-hmm it's a fine line because there are certain things in the classical technique that are required Mm -hmm. in order to like be a professional in this, you know, Mm -hmm. like you must have a certain rotational capacity of your hips just to be successful as, as a ballet dancer. You must Mm -hmm. have a certain level of arch to your feet. If you're going to dance on point, Mm -hmm. these are things we accept as realities, Mm -hmm. but then it it gets into places where, you know, directors are judging based off appearance and based off something mm-hmm. someone can't change, yeah. which is, you know, ultimately the same. If somebody has limited rotational capacity in their hips, mm-hmm. it's also not something that they can change, mm-hmm. but it's also something that's required to successfully execute the technique Yes the other is not you know yeah. if somebody has more of a melanated skin tone they're darker that's not something that's going to affect their ability no absolutely not correctly execute the choreography mm-hmm. it's just something that you know people have underlying biases yes and in this world that we're in, in this industry, Mm -hmm. we give the people who are sitting at the front of the room, the ultimate say-so and the ultimate power to cast, to not cast, to hire, to not hire. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to say, to Mm. say, you know, how much their racial, their underlying racial biases are influencing them, but I would guess quite a lot.
0: Yeah, Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I think, gosh, I mean, there's, so many issues that just haven't i guess been i say erased but they haven't been unlearned There's, Mm -hmm. and i don't you know i don't know how i always wondered like okay like what's the next generation going to look like in terms of artistic directors in terms of ballet companies are we going to see more diversity are we going to have to wait until all the you know the majority of the current directors are out of work like how's What's it going to look like? How's, how long is it going to take for actual change and these underlying biases to essentially, you know, li- like not exist?
1: Um, that's what I would say too. Is like it, I I think changing this industry like has to, is something that has to happen from within people mm-hmm. who are currently inside of it, and we can't just like call for change and say like, well, directors need to hire more dancers of mm-hmm. color. Because there's underlying problems with that too. Like, there are dancers of color, there are just less professional dancers of color always than there are white ones. And that's not an accurate representation of the world. No, right? It's only an accurate representation of one dance community. Mm -hmm. And so that's what tells you it's also a systemic problem. Like, we're Mm. not supporting young dancers of color to get through. All of the hoops and hurdles we've already talked about earlier, not that my story is Mm -hmm. representative of everyone's story, but we know there are hoops and hurdles and lots of training to go through to reach a professional level. Mm -hmm. We're not supporting young dancers of color to make it through that journey to get to the point where they're even in front of directors who are looking to hire them. And so then- (laughs) we are giving directors all the heat and saying oh you're not hiring dancers mm. of color well part of half the problem is they weren't presented dancers mm. of color mm. and so it's like it's like a systemic dismantling mm. of this industry that has happened over years and years before we're going to see companies that are diversely representative of the actual population
0: yeah oh 100% agree and i like i say this all the time um i guess just like I think I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, but I'm always like telling my mum this. I'm like, the issue is there's not enough dancers of colour in vocational schools. And that's Mm -hmm. because there's no support for them to get into the schools in the first place. Whether that be to the auditions, to have adequate training that puts them at a level with, you know, maybe a lot of them will have to, you know, there's a lot of economic issues in general with like whether it be like private lessons and things like that and not everyone comes from the same financial background um and so there's all these sort of kind of I guess systemic issues um and also education there's cultural stuff there's so many things but essentially there's not like a true representation of Um, you know dancers from more marginalized communities or dancers of color in these professional training programs so then when it gets to the end of the training program then you know if the whole class is white then of course course. it's not going to be like of course they're going to hire the white person then the company doesn't change because there was no one there so it does it has to start way younger you know it has to start at the beginning and I know recently, um, I guess, well, I'll speak about this because I kind of know a bit about it because my old dance school have been involved, but um, English National Ballet started this program called Ballet Futures and they essentially, um, I think they you know, contacted five small dance schools, like not vocational, like just normal local dance schools in the UK and basically held auditions for dancers of colour to then become part of this program. And I know quite a few of them, I think four from my local dance school were chosen and they were taken down to go see Raymonda. which in a real, if, you know, if Raymonda was on and they didn't have this opportunity, they wouldn't have gone to see Raymonda. So this is a, was like, a, I guess, like a really great opportunity to go see a ballet that if this, you know, organized, this thing that had been organized didn't exist, they would have never been exposed to classical ballet at the Coliseum in London. Um, right. And there's stuff like that. And then they're going to be training with them for cons- consistently three years. And I guess the goal of the program is to then get dancers from, you know, you know, dancers of colour, people from different communities that may not usually have access to, you know, really good quality training to have high quality training to get them into the vocational school which then hopefully I guess we're going to see more dancers come out of vocational schools and dancing professional companies, which is, I guess, the goal of the whole program. Um, but there that needs to be more common. Like that can't just be oh, absolutely. one thing. Like everyone needs to be doing that. Um, every professional company needs to be doing that because otherwise, how is it going to change? Like it has to start way earlier than, you know 16 or you know has to be starting at like five years old
1: <laughs> right
0: exactly and
1: you know we're dancers our careers start at like I said earlier on the this mm. episode and you know I knew I wanted to be a professional dancer when I was 12 mm. if you don't aren't on that track already it's very hard to catch up to the people who yeah. are but yeah. that's where ballet is getting its reputation for being an elitist art form because, in its current state, it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You have to have access to things. I mean, it is on so many levels. On the level that we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. that you have to have access to quality training and all of these things that would make it so that somebody would just not have the opportunity mm-hmm. to become a professional dancer because they they didn't get at a super young age what they needed to have gotten there. Yeah and it's also elitist from an audience perspective, you know, people a lot of times aren't being exposed to ballet as an art form because mm-hmm. it's something where like I can't afford the tickets to this. Yeah. This isn't a part of my community, this isn't a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And then the repertory isn't even interesting to them. So why would they spend a ton of money on tickets? So it's like almost dying from both ends, you know, we're having difficulty training new and quality dancers. We're also having difficulty getting people involved and Mm -hmm. wanting to to see this and be involved in this thing. If we don't get people involved, we can't fund the first thing.
0: (laughs) We can't fund
1: (laughs) the beginning of it. So it's like this never ending cycle of like something is very broken here and something needs change.
0: Mm. I mean I definitely like relate to the whole thing about not affording to go see ballet because I when I think about my growing up um I think the first time I saw a live ballet performance was was when I was 11 and that's once we'd moved to the UK and prior to that I'd lived in Sydney you know I lived in a city that had the royal opera house where the Australian ballet came and performed but it just wasn't something that we could afford and you know there's four people in the family and every ticket is 50 pounds it soon adds up to be or to 50 dollars or more you know a night evening to go see a live ballet soon you know it adds up to a few hundred dollars and then I'm like who who was affording how like how is I guess like a normal I say a normal family affording that and let alone on a regular basis and only recently when I've you know I've started working and you know, working for myself and I've actually got a job and stuff like that, which I didn't have when I was doing training, I can afford to go see these ballets, but they're not cheap. Like, like, I'm like, how is a family of five of, you know, the two kids want to love ballet and their parents are, you know, working very normal jobs. It ends, you know, it's not accessible to the majority of the population of either America, the UK, Australia, anywhere it's not and that's where there's a lot of issues where it's like how do you expect these young people to be exposed to ballet to fall in love with it let alone the training but to be inspired by it if they can't even afford to go see it and then exactly it just is like a broken circle <laughs> and it's it's a racial inequality issue on the other side too that yeah.
1: audience members tend to be white people oh, who support the ballet then tend to be white. And mm-hmm. so it's all trickling down from the top. It's mm-hmm. these, a lot of ballet companies have huge donors and they're rich, old white, white men. men. Absolutely. Not stereotype, <laughs> but like, then when, when the those people are what's bringing in trillions of dollars to mm-hmm. the company, they want to see what they want to see yeah. and so their racial biases are then allowed to influence you know the entire get-go mm-hmm. of the company all the way down to those dancers who are in the court de ballet yeah. or even if there's a dancer of color in the company mm-hmm. that maybe they're not being cast as often in the court de ballet right because yeah. people people are those rich old white men <laughs> who are at the top who are funding all of this yeah. are ultimately the problem and then that ultimately stems from the problem of you know how can we get young people involved
0: Mm.
1: how do we get young money involved in this art form because it does have to be funded it has to be funded at a point I don't want to dance for free no of course
0: yeah like that's yeah then it just becomes exploitation um people you know with dancers have to work and not just for minimum wage like the energy that's getting it you know the amount of training time energy our own resources like it needs to and that's obviously that's like just the whole issue in itself um but like I don't know like I do remember recently I went to I think I went to go see the Nutcracker um the English National Ballet did in London and I was sat there you know literally I got really cheap tickets actually for that performance I think they were around like 11 pounds which is great but not most of them like most of them were like over like 30 to 40 50 to 100 the majority like i want to say a good 99 percent of the audience were white not like genuinely and i was like how do we like it's just not accessible it's not i don't know and i don't like i was like this is not like this can't be the future of ballet like if we won't grow as a art form if this is how our audiences are going to look like, because if you look at London as a city, I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong, but like, I'm pretty sure it's not 99% of a white city. Like, and that's when it's like, there's a layover, you know, you go to a football game. I don't know. I've never been to a football game. I, I think it's a little bit going to be a bit more different Um,
1: and a bit more diverse. The disconnect I think is like our, world like for me los angeles Mm -hmm. is very diverse our world has lots of different people from different walks of life in it but our dance world and our dance community doesn't our dance community has one type of person in it overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. and so if you don't fit into that mold you're told that you don't belong here and that's the stereotype that like has to be broken down
0: yeah definitely Um, yeah (laughs) it's I find it so interesting and I really like to I guess like hear other people's thoughts and opinions on this topic because I think I guess everyone has a different kind of experience to share different thought to share on it and hopefully these you know this conversation will give the listeners a bit of food for thought about maybe anything really (laughs) I hope so. I've shared some
1: controversial opinions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but it's okay. I, it shouldn't be controversial, you know, okay. to like support art for art. I think at the end of the day, where my where I fall into ballet and my thoughts is like you have to you have to assume that it's art first. Mm-hmm. You know, it's art before it's anything else and the the purpose of art is just to have something beautiful in the world that exists for no other purpose than that. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that definition and then what ballet has turned into and become, again, there's something that's largely disconnected and it's turned into something completely other than what it started out in its intention to be.
0: Mm. No, definitely. Um, Okay, I think we've touched on every topic or everything from all my notes. Was there anything else you wanted to mention or... Any last words for the listeners before we end the episode? Um, I think that's that's probably mm-hmm. probably
1: it for me for, ah. my big for today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, before we finish and round up the episode, Karma, where can the listeners find you? Um, if they want to follow you on Instagram or any social media or anything.
1: Absolutely, yeah. My Instagram is karma c a r m a, like my name. Forty four. And I'm pretty active on there. I like to like share my journey with ACB and dance, dancing in Los Angeles. So it's all a big journey. Come join me.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll leave that in the description below um, for the listeners to check you out. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Really enjoyed this episode. I hope the listeners and everyone, well, yeah, everyone listening, enjoy the episode too. Um, and yeah, you can hear me same time next week and yeah, have a lovely week and thank you for coming on. Bye.